Packers fans. You wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest show on the net, podcast. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasting. Hello, welcome to your podcast, the official podcast of the Kiss Army. Uh, I'm Gary Schaller. And I'm Ken Mills. And we are so happy that you're with us. We've got a great show. We're talking about an album tonight that I think most Kiss fans love. It's got an iconic cover. It's something that I think a lot of Kiss fans hold up as the gold standard for what Kiss should sound like in the studio when they're just being Kiss. And the album in question is Rock and Roll Over. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Paul Stanley, Ace Frehley, Kiss. Rock and Roll Over. Kiss, Rock and Roll Over. Casablanca Records and Tapes. Kiss, Rock and Roll Over. For tonight, we have a great panel of uh, of discussants to talk about this legendary Kiss record. Alrighty, so is everybody ready to rock and roll all over? We have Brian Schaller joining us tonight, brother and uh, poor guy who had to put up with Gary for most of his life. A uh, gentleman by the name of Matt Walters. You may know him as Necronomicon. He is a music producer and manager. We're also joined by Roland Sarazen from Portland, Oregon, and you may know him from the message boards as Red Falcon. We also have Joe Casey, who is working on the new Spider-Man cartoon, which is coming out. It's coming out next spring. Okay, next spring. Thank you very much. And, of course, he's the creator of Ben 10, and he's written many comic books, including the Kiss comics for Dark Horse. Ken, you became a fan in 1975. Mm -hmm. Alive was already out. You were there for Destroyer, and then this came out. It was basically an all-time high to be a Kiss fan at this point. Uh, I mean, it seemed like everybody and their brothers was into Kiss. I mean, Kiss had been on Paul Lynn, for God's sakes. You know, it, they were everywhere. They were actually at my uh, school dance, in a sense, because I danced uh, a very young Ken Mills, danced with a young girl named Jackie Garlock to Beth. Nice. And it seemed like the entire world was getting to be Kiss crazy. Even my teachers liked Beth. They were the right. guys that breathed fire and spit blood, but all of a sudden, there's Beth. And I thought it was kind of strange because at the time... You had a shift on the Almighty School Bus. You had the the older guys who liked the first three albums in Alive. They were kind of confused about Destroyer, and they wanted Kiss to be what they used to be, not necessarily this overproduced thing. That that's kind of what was going on at the time. And so those conversations really did happen, didn't they? Yes, they did. As a matter of fact, you you started hearing terms like sellout, and wow. uh, you know it's just not the same anymore. Wow, and it's weird because you know. Uh, we, we tend to celebrate anniversaries on this show, and it is 35 years since Rock and Roll Over came out, but it's 35 years also since Destroyer came out. Only, I, I, I don't know how we're gonna manage or if we're gonna manage to do any kind of Destroyer show. I feel like any Kiss podcast is a Destroyer show every, every time we have one, because that, that album is so, uh, you know, kind of like so central to what Kiss is, but Rock and Roll Over is a record that, you know, factors just as significantly in some ways into Kiss's repertoire. You know, there's a lot of songs from that record that they played live that they continue to to play live for many years great demos that come out of that period some of which we're going to be hearing later and just some really cool live rarities uh that that this record yields but before we do that i want to kind of go around and find out just very quickly what people think 
when they think of Rock and Roll Over? Brian? Uh, rock and Roll Over was actually, I think it was the first Kiss album I bought. Uh, it wasn't the first Kiss album I owned, but it was the first one that I actually went to a store and decided I was going to start a very, very big collection that took a long time to accumulate. And uh, I just I just remember putting that on for the first time and, and just loving it. It was definitely not the first time I'd heard it, but there was something very special about going and buying my first Kiss record. I'll never forget that experience. Was that a... Was it on vinyl or CD or tape? No, it was on CD. It was the, uh, I think, when the after the remaster started coming out. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Matt? Well, my, my experience with Bargain Roll Over is very different. I, I became a fan in 1977, uh, and my first couple albums were Destroyer and Gene Simmons' solo album. And then after that, I sort of got all the records much later. And so looking at Rock and Roll Over, the way that everybody else looks at it as a follow-up to Destroyer is really sort of a different experience than I had had with the record. What I think about it is, you know, it's easy to compare it to Destroyer because it came out so quickly after it, because it was like six months later, and it was so different and jarring. And for some people who criticize this album, and there are not many who do, they feel like it's sort of a step backward. But I feel like Destroyer is sort of a, tip, a totally different approach to Kiss that emphasizes this thematic larger-than-life thing that happens that they were unable to c- capture previously in the studio. Uh, but they did that with, like, outside writers and other instrumentation and gated reverbs in the vocals and things like that. But Rock and Roll Over is actually properly a follow-up to Dress to Kill. I mean, if you really compare Dress to Kill to Rock and Roll Over, they came out within a year of each other, and there's just so much growth there. I mean, yeah. so many things are happening. Let me interrupt you for a second. Give us that time span again. I want everyone to be aware of that. Give us that time span again between Dress to Kill and Rock and Roll Over. I want to say it's 15 months. I want to say it's something like, you know, early to mid-75 was Dress to Kill, and then the fall of 76 is Rock and Roll Over. And they're very similar albums. Dress to Kill is a very live-in-the-studio record, and so is Rock and Roll Over. But they're, I mean... The records are night and day when you compare them. I mean, Kiss was was writing very simple songs on Dress to Kill, just like they were doing on Rock and Roll Over, but there's so many riffs and hooks and choruses that are so catchy on Rock and Roll Over, and the band is just on fire. And so I, I, I feel like Rock and Roll Over really can't really be compared to Destroyer because Destroyer is a different approach to a record. Dress to Kill is really the, the, the record that I compare Rock and Roll Over to because it's really sort of a sequel to that approach. And uh, so I sort of look at it that way. And in particular, I think Ace as a lead guitarist is just amazing on this record. And Ace and Peter together uh, are just never more solid than they are on this release. And it's it's one of my top records. It consistently rates at the top of most all the polls that we do on the board. So I think it's just a fantastic album front to back. Roland Sarazen. Yeah, I agree with uh, a lot of what Matt said. It, it is much more like Dress to Kill, but I think it incorporates possibly a little bit more musical maturity that came from probably the process of doing Destroyer, and then that's incorporated into Rock and Roll Over. Uh, it was recorded perfectly, recorded at the Star Theater in New York in September of 76. Eddie Kramer and Kiss, it's, it, it's an unbeatable combination. Um, those two were made to work with each other in in those days it's raw and yet all the songs are very thoroughly worked out great songs the only thing i could ever complain about possibly on this album is that there there isn't an ace song great peter songs great gene songs great paul songs but it's one of those few really quintessential kiss albums that doesn't have a great ace song on it and it's kind of surprising or even a, an, an ace co-credit for writing. Right. I think uh, overall, though, this is probably, it's a toss-up. It's either my second or third favorite studio album uh, by far. I, it's Okay, it's what's a, one, it's two, a and perfect, three? One is definitely Creatures. 
Um, it always has been ever since probably the first time I ever spun it. Ed, the first album, just for the content of the songs that are on there, maybe not the recording standards or the actual performances themselves, but, I mean, that's a whole album of classics right there. Very cool. Mr. Joe Casey. I guess I have a different experience than, Ken, what you were saying about sort of older KISS fans not liking Destroyer and then rock and roll just return to what they thought KISS should be. My first album was Destroyer, and I bought it, or got it, in 77. And my second album was Kiss Alive 2. So, and then I started to fill in the records after that. Mm -hmm. So, Destroyer, you know, your first impression is always your strongest impression. That was Kiss to me. When I started hearing the other studio records, including Rock and Roll Over, I was kind of, you know, my little eight-year-old brain was kind of taken aback on, you know, they were more raw, they weren't as polished. And, you know, you guys are talking about Rock and Over being the follow-up to Dress to Kill. I think that's exactly right. I think I talked about this in an earlier podcast where their reaction to the initial lukewarm response to Destroyer was to rush into the studio and do an album like Rock and Roll Over which was, you know, raw, totally eschewed all the Bob Ezrin-esque, you know, touches. But what's interesting is that then Destroyer blows up, one of their biggest albums. Not to get too far off track, but the follow-up to Destroyer, oddly enough, is Love Gun, with the piano on Christine 16 and the uh, the effects on Almost Human. That's where they reincorporated the stuff that people liked about Destroyer into their albums again. So it is interesting that Rock and Roll Over is this this sort of island of reaction to something that they didn't even react to yet. They didn't even know what the impact of Destroyer was going to be. They just thought, our fans don't like it. It's too different. Let's go in. Let's go back to basics. And the record is great. Now, personally, because my first sort of one-two punch was Destroyer and then Kiss Alive 2, hearing the songs in the studio that were on Alive 2, I mean, for me, the definitive version of Calling Dr. Love is on Alive 2. And I Want You and uh, Hard Luck Woman uh, and Making Love, all of those to me are live versions. And then what you hear on Rock and Roll Over, you know, not to put down the album, but to me are these almost these really dry, uh, almost anemic versions of these great songs. It's really, to me, it's kind of, it's a great record, and I've you know grown to love it over the years, but it's, I still kind of look at it as this kind of proto-album. You, you know what, Joe? I, I, just so you're not kind of hanging out there on your own, Rock and Roll Over is a great album uh, for all the reasons that you know that we have and have talked about and that we're going to talk about. Uh, it is my least favorite of the albums that they did uh, during the original makeup era. You know, like from '73 to '82, '83, whatever. Um, and 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 that's because similarly to what you're talking about, my first Kiss record was Gene Simmons, then it was Alive, and then it was Destroyer. And and so Rock and Roll Over was good, really, really good, but it wasn't, it, it didn't, it didn't define Kiss as something markedly different from I think a lot of other rock and roll bands in terms of the music. I mean, other bands in 1976 could have made that album and were and were making music not unlike what was on that album, and neither the lyrical content nor the the music itself was really all that uh, unique to Kiss. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess I think in terms of uh, they don't have to be self-referential. And, in fact, sometimes when they are self-referential, it's not to good effect. But you come out of something like Destroyer where, um, you know, where it was kind of like Kiss's purpose statement. You know, it was, it was like them sort of declaring uh, what Kiss was. 
Um, and then and then rock and roll over. It, I don't know, it feels a little flat after that. Well, look at just look at just look at um, just off the top of my head, I can think of. I mean, I feel like not that they were conscious of this, but I think in, in the long run, even Kiss might have thought that album was a bit not too raw, but maybe even unfinished. If you think about it, the version of Hard Luck Woman on double platinum is you know way to take out the drums. It's right. more like Beth than the original version, you know, in terms of, like, being a, a ballad. Uh, Calling Dr. Love, they com- did a whole new sort of arrangement, took out vocals and did different things. And then Gene redid See You in Your Dreams on his solo album, which is a way better version, in my opinion, that's than right. the one that's on right. Rock and Roll Over. So you could see that's the one album they've, they've gone back to more than any other and tried to approach that material in different ways, which I think is very telling. It's also an interesting point. You bring up, Joe, you know, what your first Kiss album was, what your first Kiss experience was in a, in a way, almost shapes your fandom from then on. Like yeah. where you said Destroy is your first album, that's Kiss. Everything after that, Rock and Roll Over is going to seem very different. Um, you know, Ken had a, diff- a completely different story. You know, I heard Alive first when I was five years old, and uh, the songs were all so huge, but then I heard the first three studio albums, and, the, and I sort of <coughs> incorporated that into to what their style was, at least in my head, was, well, this is what they sound like live, this is what they sound like when they record their music, and then I heard Destroyer, and Destroyer was so much different. Great album, I probably listened to it non-stop for three months straight, but then rock and roll over it was sort of like oh we're going back to how it was back then and it was much more uh almost alive-esque than the first three albums in a way just because it it, it was much bigger i hate to use the word sonically but it, it was much bigger than the than the first three studio albums but it was definitely toned down from destroy so it almost seemed like a return in a way to me and then like you said love gun sort of uh Incorporated rock and roll over and destroyer and, and became its own thing again. Its own bastard you know, child. It's kind of interesting of where you start, of how it shapes everything that happens from then on. It's yeah. real interesting to me. Hi, this is Eric Singer of Kiss, and you're listening to Pod Kissed. Go back for a second to what you know, what Matt was saying, you know, about it sort of being like the the sequel to Dress to Kill. The thing about Dress to Kill and, and, and all that material and the stuff on, on Kiss Alive is that those songs, ha, uh, some of them are, are kind of darker and edgier in a way. Um, you think about like the She as kind of a, a uh-huh. darker song and like watching you 100,000 years. That material, uh, it's riffy, it's weird, it's, it's angular in some respect. The only song on Rock and Roll Over that I think even approximates that is Love Em and Leave Em. And I mean, the content of that song, the, the lyrical content is just, is ridiculous and silly. But the but musically it's it's got some something interesting about it uh, versus I think the rest of the songs on Rock and Roll Over they're great iconic Kiss songs only it's it's not a very dark record there's not anything kind of dangerous about it well there's another know. element to the record too which in in you know to compare it to Destroyer what they stumbled onto and probably Bob Ezrin had a lot to do with this it, I think by and large Destroyer was an album where the song content that was an album that was about Kiss, exactly ab- about their personas. They were, you know, they were realizing the power of the makeup, the power of their personas, and they were starting to. They were writing songs that fed into their persona. Rock and Roll Over. Then, to me, the step back is stepping back to as, as great as they are. Their basic rock and roll songs that are kind of generic in their content, and then again. You skipped ahead to Love Gun, and they start to reincorporate their personas 
into right. the songs they're they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it is this weird anomaly in in their progression as a band and 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 what they represented to people. Right. Now, let me ask uh, Brian. I, I want to ask you a question. You you'd heard so much of Kiss's music, you know, growing up with you know with an older brother who was into them. Where in the timeline did you get Rock and Roll Over? I know you said you got the remastered version, but was it before or after Psycho Circus had came out? I think, it was, out? Be- I think it was before. I, I I feel like I have a lot. I feel like I have a lot of of uh, Kiss first, uh, and and they all sort of fit in in different periods of time, and they're not always in chronological order with what the band was doing. So I feel like I feel like Rock and Roll Over was probably my first, the first kid, that was the first kiss album I bought on my own. And then I sort of went back and forth in the timeline of albums and, and then Psycho Circus happened. I had my first kiss concert. And so I sort of had a different, sort of a different exposure to things. And um, so it's kind of hard for me to decide how I feel about rock and roll over as sort of a more uh, sort of uh, traditional sounding kiss album with, uh, uh, you know, less of the, of the sort of flair and, and stuff about destroy that makes it such a unique album. Well, I mean, what were you expecting? Like, what what was your idea of what Kiss was at that time? To be honest, I don't think I had I had one idea. I, I think I had a I think I had a bunch of mixtapes from you um, from when you went off to college. I mean, really, sort of had a variety of material on them, and it had a little bit of you know. I remember hearing I, I can't remember the first time I heard Beth, and I also can't remember the first time I heard uh, uh, I Want You or uh, uh, King of the Nighttime World or, or Creatures of the Night. So. I sort of had an exposure to a whole bunch of different things that didn't fit into sort of one stream of what Kiss was doing. And so I guess I went into it not expecting one thing or something else. Um, but I definitely agree that it's sort of a more, uh, it sort of fits in better with the first album than with uh, with Destroyer, you know, had led right up to it. I, I wanted to just go back to the point that uh, somebody said earlier uh, in terms of uh, the differences between Destroyer and uh and rock and roll over. And one of the things I noticed about Destroyer that I'd never noticed before when I was listening to that record in comparison to this one was that if you listen to all the, the different lead guitar solos on Destroyer, Detroit Rock City has a composed melody line. Do You Love Me has a composed melody line. Mm-hmm. Great Expectations has a composed melody line. Those are all not really <coughs> ace solos. They're not really like ace's signature sound. They're obviously premeditated. Sometimes these dueling guitar lines come into play. And then you have Dick Wagner replacing him on at least one track that we know of, maybe two. So, so, so basically, Bob Ezrin directed those solos. Well, and, and well, the lead guitar work on Destroyer. I got to be honest. Even though Ace Freely has got, even though he's got a co-write on Destroyer and not on Rock and Roll Over, I feel like Rock and Roll Over is far more an Ace album than Destroyer. Oh yeah, Amen. And uh, that that's a that's a really I, I feel like that's a really important point because. On a solo, for those guitarists out there, on a solo like Making Love, or on a solo like Colin Dr. Love, or like you said, Gary, on Love Em and Leave Em, there is such a feel to those solos, which is so hard to replicate. Uh, he is he is just in the zone the entire time on the album. And to be honest, the solos sort of take the songs to a different level that uh, yes. they hadn't gotten to before, in my opinion. I mean, when I listen to A soloing on Dress to Kill, I think, oh, you know, good solo. When I listen to A soloing on Rock and Roll Over, I'm like, wow, you know. The, the solos take the songs to the next level. I would agree with that. I think the solo on Calling Dr. Love is probably one of the classic ace solos of all time. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, when the reunion tour happened, the shows that I saw, except for the first song, I think Dr. Love was probably like three or four or five songs into the set, that ace solo got the biggest reaction from the crowd mm-hmm. that I'd ever seen you know, at a, at a concert, you know, just for something of that nature, just a guy taking a solo. 
I mean, it was just amazing. People know and remember that solo, you know, after you know, 30 years later. And I think it's the first time that Ace played every lead on an album. And maybe the only time he played Yeah, exactly, in the, last, the first and last. And, yeah, I was going to say the last, because in a sense, this is the last real self-contained Kiss album for a while. Wait, Ace played every lead on Hotter Than Hell in the first album. Yeah, well, he we're, played, we're talking about the last. We're talking oh, yeah. about the last well, yeah, for a while. Yeah, that, that's true, but, like, for example, you start getting the fragmentation, you know, you start getting that, that split solo in I Stole Your Love, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah I see what you're saying. Yeah, the last time, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the other thing about that, is is that uh, it's it's like you were saying it's a, it's the last real band album for a while. Well, if it's the follow up to Dress to Kill, then it's probably the predecessor to Lick It Up and then Sonic Boom. I mean, if you look at things in that way, as you mean, as far as being an insular band right. album, right? They, but so if you look at these things in terms of okay, what's the follow up? Like somebody said that that Love Gun is the follow up to Destroyer, which is a really astute point because Love Gun has those sort of you know orchestration elements or subtle sort of features of production that, that Rock and Roll Over doesn't have. And I feel like people group those two records together too much. They're really different records, especially because of Shock Me. Um, but, but again, like, you know, if you look at Lick It Up as really a follow-up to Rock and Roll Over and you look at Sonic Boom as a follow-up to Lick It Up because those are the kind of the pattern, then you sort of get out of the trap of trying to compare different approaches to records, which I think is the, the central point that KISS fans sort of disagree about is the approach of the records. That's a it's, great point. I never thought of it that way in terms of, you know, the, the, those huge gaps in time between, you know, Kiss making a, just a Kiss album, right? You know, that you that you skip from, like, I don't know, I guess like Rock and Roll Over all the way to Lick It Up and then Sonic Boom. That's amazing. Right. And then, and, you know, to build on that, too, you know, Creatures really is sort of a follow-up to Destroyer and Love Gun in some ways because they're taking all these people outside the band to help write songs or, to, you know, they're, they're doing these production flourishes and sort of creating this mythology all over again. So it's just a different approach, you know. I think that Un- Unmasked is a sequel to the soundtrack to Xanadu. <laughs> oh, my God. It is so strange because we're talking so much about Love Gun. We're talking so much more about Destroyer, which will have its own show. But this album, it is is pretty much essential because it lives in the shadow of Destroyer and there was a backlash. I'm going to read a couple quotes to you. About Destroyer, Gene said, We thought it was too smooth, so we were trying to catch the gut thing again. And yet, in the back of our minds, we felt we shouldn't limit ourselves. Paul said, There's no strings on this album. There's no choirs, no keyboards, all guitars. So this was like probably one of the last albums that they would not try to compare to Destroyer. Well, what, when were those quotes from? What were the, what, when can you date those quotes? Yeah, this is, this is, uh, 76 and 77, so. To, right. to what, ex- to what extent did Destroyer's success happen, uh, prior to them entering the studio for Rock and Roll Over? Where's the timeline fall with that? Well, well I, somebody tell me when Beth broke as a single, cause that's, if, if anybody knows, cause that's the moment, but I, I think Rock and Roll came out in November, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing they probably were in the studio uh, September after the Destroyer tour, but I don't think Beth broke as a single until September October. On the same day that Rock and Roll Over received gold certification, Destroyer became the band's first platinum certified studio album. Platinum success for Destroyer legitimized the band to a certain extent, though it should be noted that it had taken the effects of Beth some three months to push. You know, so there you go. They entered the recording studio for Rock and Roll Over. 
on September 13th and finished recording on October 4th. The album was released in November. Destroyer was released basically in, in I think, late April or early May of, of 76. I, I just don't think Beth could have broken yet, but when they entered the studio for Rock and Roll Over. I don't think it did. I think it would, I mean, I think that, uh, I think it had, it had to have been October because, you know, they, they played it on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Which was actually recorded during the making of this album. Right. And, but they wouldn't have even thought to, to do that, uh, if, if Beth hadn't started to, you know, right. uh, make some noise, so to speak. Yeah, of course. It, and it wasn't until the Rock and Roll Over tour that they played Beth, that, that, you know, they performed Beth live. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, Paul, Paul Lynn was, uh, it was taped October 19th and 20th. And like I said, at Rock and Roll Over closed tracking on October 4th. So they, they went into the studio with this approach that Destroyer didn't do as well as we thought it would have necessarily. And maybe we should go back to the old formula because yeah. the record hadn't really broken yet. But by the I mean, time that Rock and Roll Over actually came out, Beth had made Destroyer platinum album. album. Yeah, that's the, that's the day, you know, I mean, it's not a danger, but that's the, that's the byproduct of, of how fast they were moving, you know. I mean, they, they were moving faster than they could react to what was happening as far as the public was concerned in their career, you mm-hmm. know, which, I, which is, you know, it's in a way, it makes for an interesting <laughs> discography for them. It makes for an interesting musical journey that they took, you know. I mean, it's it makes this discussion worth having because they, they had no idea. They actually thought that Destroyer was kind of a dud, especially with their hardcore fans, and they were they were, in a way, scrambling to at least get those people back that they had, you know, gotten with Alive and, and, and the, the record before that. So it's... Well, it, it, alone could could be exactly why Rock and Roll Over in a lot of ways does sort of get overlooked musically for its songs or whatever because they had a huge hit from the album before while it was out. Yeah. Let me ask let me ask Brian a question. Even though it's really not fair to compare, uh, you know, these, you know, these like sort of like, even though these are two very different situations, let me ask. We're talking about Rock and Roll Over as a follow-up to Destroyer. Think about Sonic Boom as a follow-up to, to Psycho Circus, right? You know, and Psycho Circus had all this kind of bells and whistles and, sure, and stuff, right? And, and, you know, putting aside, I guess, if it's possible to put aside the, the controversy of, of Psycho Circus and who did and didn't play on it and all that stuff. What, what do you think in terms of, um, you know, having just become a fan, buying Psycho Circus, that's your first kind of like, here's a new Kiss record, and then Sonic Boom. It's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for me to compare those two because you know we're we're talking about the the tiny window of time that that passed between Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over compared to the years and years that went by in between. Uh, oh, well, uh, oh, oh, when did when did uh, Psycho Circus come out? So you're talking about eleven. Was it ninety? Oh yeah, eleven years. Ninety eight, two thousand nine. Yeah, I mean that's it's a it's a huge it's a huge jump. And, uh, you know, how many, how many tours went by in that period of time too? And, and the Psycho Circus tour, as, you know, yeah, they played a few songs off that album, but it really, it really didn't so much feel in a lot of ways like it was a tour for that album, I guess, I guess to me at least. Um, not that I was expecting to go and hear a whole bunch of things off Psycho Circus, but even still it was, yeah, it, it felt, it felt more like what came after. And, you know, as, as they started cutting the, the few songs off the set list that, that were from Psycho Circus anyway, I mean, when there was, there was a title track and there was within and, and, and I don't, uh, Into the Void was that, that was it, right? Right, right. Right. So, I mean, it didn't even really feel like, I mean, it felt like a tour for that album, but, but in a way it, it, it almost didn't. So that and the fact that so much time had gone by and, and, and I guess it's hard to, it's hard to compare those things and it doesn't, 
and I guess if they had come out closer together, it wouldn't at all feel like a follow-up to Psycho Circus. They're two, they're two very different things. But I think, uh, but I mean, I think similarly, people were were expecting, or, or a lot of people were looking forward to having a Kiss album that sounded like something that was more familiar and sounded like something that was more traditional. And they certainly got that with Sonic Boom. And it's a great thing to have. But I also really appreciate when they do things that are a little different, a little, a little interesting, like with Psycho Circus. And I just remember being so thrilled with that album when it came out. Just, just to clear, just to clarify real quick, uh, Beth attained national status in November of '76. Pretty much right as the album was getting released, Rock and Roll. Wow, it's amazing. Well, let's go track by track. We'll kick it off with the song that kicks off the record, I Want You. Are you going to yodel for us, Gary? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Okay, so what's our thoughts on I Want You? Let's start with Joe Casey. Uh, Probably Paul at his most Zeppelin-esque. I mean, it's just a Zeppelin song through and through, you know, and... It's funny because when I first heard this song on Alive 2 and then, and then on Rock and Roll Over, I didn't even know from Led Zeppelin. So it's only, you know, it's only been as I grew up and listened to other, other music where I realized out of, and Paul's an unabashed Zeppelin fan, but this song is, let's call it a, an homage to classic Zeppelin. It's not an outright ripoff of these sort of Zeppelin model of, you know, Robert Plant style singing and, uh, sort of staccato passages in the song, and, and it's a Zeppelin tune. You know, great song, though. Mr. Roland Sarazen. Yeah, I, I love the opening of it with the uh, acoustic guitar coming off of Destroyer, if you think about it, and through through the history of doing doing a very soft opening. Oh, you think this is Destroyer? No, it's rock and roll over when the guitars come in. Uh, I think it's a great opening uh for this album, it's a little bit of a different musical style, hook-wise, and uh, yeah, I would agree, very Zeppelin-esque. Love this song, Mr. Matt Walters. I, I think that this song is really—it's uh, interesting uh, coming off of Destroyer, as, as as we said earlier. That you know, this band may have had subtle differences in how they approached even straight-ahead rock and roll songs, and I think that the, that the dynamics in this song are really indicative of that shift. I mean, they take. From, from a very soft point to open the album, they go very loud, and then back to soft again. Previously, they would, you know, uh, on their rockers, they would just rock. And while Rock Bottom has some dynamics to it, it's pretty much just the guitar intro, and then it slams for the rest of the song. Here we have a song going back and forth, and the, the E minor Paul rocker sort of became a staple of the last half of the 70s. I mean, you had, you know, you had basically Tonight You Belong to Me, and you had Sure Know Something, and you had Easy As It Seems. This is really the first really classic E minor Paul Rocker that you have. And part of that riff actually shows up later. Uh, that, that chorus riff really reminds me uh, later on of uh, Modern Eagle Island's rift, actually. It's very similar yeah. in some ways. So, uh, but yeah, very Zeppelin-esque, as someone said earlier. Brian Schaller, take it away. No, I, I absolutely agree with Matt. Uh, that's, I think that's uh, such a great way to start off an album. You have that, you know, little quiet part, and it just it builds and it goes back down at the end. I, I, I love that, and that just that grabbed me the first time I put on that album. It's a great way it to is, begin. It is the first, uh, in, unless I'm just misremembering something from the first three albums. It's the first split guitar solo between Paul, you know, Paul goes first and then Ace comes in. This is also the uh, quietest opening to a Kiss album in a way, wouldn't you say? Uh, oh, so yeah. Until until Paul's solo album, which kind right. of... Yeah, it pretty much copies the same uh, procedure, if you will. Yeah. I think it's a great song. I, you know, I think it's the second best track on the album. Uh, I Love Him and Leave Him is my favorite, but... Well, we'll get um, to that. Yeah. I, I think it's a wonderful way to open the record. I, Brian, I think you and I were really psyched to hear this on uh, 
in 2003 because it was the only thing they did that was, you know, remotely different on that tour. It was the only song that we sure. didn't expect them to play, you know. And in fact, what I want to do is just toss in here um, a performance of this song from that tour, uh, from the opening night of the U.S. Uh, tour in 2003. Uh, this is in at Meadows Music Center, Hartford, Connecticut, and we were there. It was great. And uh, here's Gene, Paul, Tommy, and Peter, a short-lived lineup playing I Want You.
I can't hear this song without seeing uh, Paul wearing his uh, fur bathrobe and then having it magically disappear in a puff of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to talk about that video. It's a very cool video. They're great. Those are great, great videos. And, and uh, I mean, that, like, I think that that's what you show a Kiss fan if you want to show them what Kiss is. When did you guys see those uh, for the first time, those videos? Early 90s on a bootleg video cassette that I bought in Westchester at a place called Rockin' Rex, which is not there anymore. Great store. Guess guess where I saw them? TV when it aired. Don Kirshner's rock concert. <laughs> does anybody we lost, remember? Does anybody we lost remember this year. Sure. Yes, we did. Yeah. I, that's, I mean, I, that's what I had seen bootleg was the Kirshner appearances, and he was... The driest guy on TV, man. Oh, God. Breathing fire, sparks flying from the Frankenstein machine, fantastic <laughs> Good Lord. I like I Want You. I prefer the studio version because it's always overdone. Yeah. That's the nicest way I can put that. Yes, I agree. Oh, my. So our next track is Take Me. Written by Paul Staley and Sean Delaney. Let's start off with Matt. You know, I think that uh, what's surprising about this song is how many guitar hooks are going on within seconds of each other. I mean, there's just so much contained in the song, and it's so well written and well contained that I really enjoy uh, all the little aspects of it. And it's just a, it's a really, uh, it's a really great song. It's a really great song live. I, I'm always interested with these with these Sean Delaney written songs with Paul Stanley, you know, to try to figure out what parts Sean wrote versus what parts Paul wrote. But on this record, they really synthesized a writing style that really worked for all these tracks. Where it's, they they all sound very uniform, and it's really cool. I just love the energy of this song. This song to me reminds me of "I Stole Your Love" in the sense of the urgency and the energy. It just kind of explodes in your face. It's the same kind of a thing. Excellent, excellent song, Brian. What do you think of "Take"? Me. I was going to know. Um, it, it never, it never really grabbed me, and, and I guess I just love the way the album begins so much that it, it just, I don't, I don't know. I, I think, I think I, uh, I don't have much of an opinion on it. <laughs> Mr. Casey, I think that uh, this is something you can rarely say about almost any Kiss song. I actually think the studio version of "Take Me" is they've never topped it. They played it live on a couple of tours. I agree. It, it's it's just Definitely. one of those few Kiss songs where it's better. The studio version is better. You know, one of the pinnacles of the production of this album actually working for the material in in this great way. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I just don't think they could have. You know, like I said, they did it with a couple of other songs where they went back and did some remixes and did some different arrangements. This one to me is pitch perfect. It's it's probably it's one of my favorite songs on record. But I would say just if I took a step back and took a critical view, it's probably the best song on the record for what this record is. I'm I'm sort of shocked, except for maybe the first lyric. I'm I'm shocked they didn't put it out as a single. I never liked it live, uh, especially in the 70s when they had that weird effect on it where it sounded like some sort of disco penguin screaming or something. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that's, that's, Peter, that's Peter Chris. That's mm-hmm. Peter Chris. And, and Gene had this Cookie Monster vocals going on at the same time. So it, was, it, was, it just never sounded right to me live. Roland, what do you think? Yeah, Ace and uh, Peter both shine on this song. I love Peter's driving drums on it. Uh, I love Ace playing the high part along with the melody uh and it's another one of those at least early in in the career it's one of those great songs that that established paul as that sort of 
of sex symbol of the band, which this whole album is is not not that their other albums weren't, but this one is just 100% from. I mean, every single song is sexual in nature. And not all Kiss records are that way, but this was that fun, really high sort of sexual energy, and especially Paul being that rock star persona. This is one of the, it's just one of my favorite Paul tunes ever. It's kind of, I have sort of a musical appreciation to this. Is kind of a, you know, if you're a musician and you, you've written songs before, it's one of those things you just appreciate. The fact that the opening riff, the bass plays the opening riff along with the guitars is is pretty unusual. Usually a song that's sort of riff-oriented will start with just, you know, one guitar playing the riff. It's very rare that the bass comes in before the drums. And I've always thought that was really interesting. And, you know, it, it's just it's just a cool thing. It's 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 those little touches that, as these albums, you know, get older and older, you, you appreciate those little touches more and more musically that they did. Gary? Eh. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, get out of here, Gary. It must be a New right. York thing. Yeah, no, dude, I'm with, i I got to say, I'm with my brother on this. It's a... I like, you know, they slowed it down and had Gene sing it on side two, and I thought it was better. Ouch. Sorry, it's the same song. You know, if you have the, you know, you go, dam, dap, 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 you know, you slow it down, and it's love them and leave them. Dam, dap, dap, down, dap, 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 you know. And, you know, aside from the, you know, Poet Laureate lyrics, I mean, I think, yeah, I think Peter and Ace do great work on it. That's about it. Begins and ends there. And the schism happens in the show early. Wow. It's good. I don't it's even great. know you anymore.
Well, let's do Dr. Pepper's favorite uh, song next. <laughs> Calling Dr. Love. Did anyone ever think this thing would be used in a soft drink commercial or any kind of commercial ever? <laughs> I'm so pissed that they didn't do a steak tie-in with Destroyer, because I think, like, Flay Mignon would have been a great... <laughs> oh. You know, like, oh that was... You notice Joe Casey didn't laugh at that one either. But it was good. It was good. I'll give you points for that. So let's take a look at what the roundtable here thinks of calling Dr. Love. Start off with Brian. You know, I, I was talking to Gary about this the other day where uh, I was saying that I preferred this version over the uh, the one on Double Platinum. And uh, I was listening to both of them the other day, and I, I really realized what, what that version has to offer. Um and I guess I'm just more familiar with the one on Rock and Roll Over, but I, I love this song. I love that solo. We were talking about that a little bit before. It was great to hear it live the first time. And it's one of those songs that I thought I wouldn't miss when I stopped when I stopped hearing them play it live because I just felt like it was one of those staples and I got I got kind of tired of it. It's great. I mean, I I, I I do prefer it on Double Platinum and I do prefer it live, but this was probably the first ver- this is the first version of it I heard and I, I I think it's great. Holland. Yeah, again, Ace and Peter making this one shine. I I like you guys were saying, Ace is solo. It's, uh, you can sing it in your head. Just proves it's a great staple. Still survives today. Matt, um, you know this this song. A lot of Gene songs are, are really riff based. Uh, before and after this, I mean, you have stuff like "Watching You" and Two Timer" and "Got Love for Sale." This song features a lot of open chords played as a riff, which is very unusual for Gene. And it kind of makes you wonder if it was slightly influenced by another emerging band at the time, ACDC, because it sounds a lot like ACDC does, or a lot like they became to sound like, at least. It's a very unusual song in that way, a lot of open chords. The other thing I think is notable about the song is that Kiss didn't even think this was going to be a hit. Uh, they didn't play it on the Rock and Roll Over tour, not once. And but it was it. released as a single. It was. It's unusual because they, they actually, I mean, I don't know why they did this, but they released it as a single and then they played Ladies Room the entire tour. And nowadays they play Calling Dr. Love and you can't get him to play Ladies Room to save your life. So it's, it's really, really strange. But, but yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great song. It's one of my favorite Gene songs. And to be honest, the other thing about this song that makes, that, that really makes it spectacular from a performance standpoint on record is that I think Gene on this record really straddled the line between melodic vocals and the Cookie Monster thing he started to develop live. I think there's elements in this song in particular where you hear him sort of get that growl perfect. He doesn't quite go overboard with it like he does with Got Love for Sale. He gets it right in the middle of where it needs to be. Great point. Very cool. Mr. Joe Casey. Well, this is an interesting song because, again, you know, the first time I heard it was on Kiss Alive 2. It's those two versions, the studio version and the live version, are like night and day in terms of feel. I think they both have their merits. It's just it's so interesting to me that, you know, like it was said, they didn't play it on the Rock and Roll Over tour, but they brought it out for the Love Gun tour, but yet it's almost like they didn't even bother to learn what they had recorded in the studio. They just, it's almost like they were covering their own song. And, uh... It's great. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the live version a lot because it's got this kind of funky groove that Peter's drums on the record on Rock and Roll Over are really straight in a way, and especially in the choruses. It's a great goddamn song. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm still laughing at the fact that last time Joe Casey referred, referred to the cover of Killers as a goddamn abomination. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it did make the show. <laughs> I, I personally like this song. I, I guess I like the double platinum version slightly better. By the way, this song went to number 16 on the charts. What was on the B-side of Calling Dr. Love? Baby Driver. Nope. Love Him or Leave Him? Nope. Mr. Speed. 
Nope, the Schaller Brothers' favorite song, Take Me. <laughs> Is that the glitch that you're hearing in Dr. Love? Oh. <laughs> Ouch. One of the reasons why I love this song is because there aren't enough instances in the live Kiss show where Paul is forced to acknowledge another human being on stage, oh and my. and they can't and, and that's not that, that's nothing against Paul. In fact, there's some cool backstage footage from from the farewell tour that that circulates among collectors, and Peter is even giving him crap about it in like a in a very friendly way, giving him kind of crap about it backstage about like how he's you know says to Paul he's like you got to make some eye contact or something like that. It's kind of funny. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. You've seen this, right? Just, and, just and turn around, give me a look, just let me know. Yeah, give you got to give me something. Yeah, and and uh, and Paul laughs and and owns it in that footage. You know, he says like I'm in my own world. What can I tell you? You know and. I think it's true, but what's cool about Dr. Love is that, you know, there's really very few times where they play live where Paul doesn't, you know, acknowledge, you know, like, better call out the doctor, and it's Gene's thing, you know. And, and I, I used to love, even though it was really ridiculous, but in the Animalized tour when he, and he would tell the, the ridiculous stories about a woman coming up to Gene in the hotel room, it was cool just because he was acknowledging, you know, he was acknowledging Gene on stage. Uh, the coolest thing, I think, with Dr. Love was, Oddly, the version that they did in that awful uh, Las Vegas 99 or whatever it was. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? That, um, sure, yeah. Live in Las Vegas right, with, right. Dave, with David Spade as one of the hosts. <laughs> but oddly enough, what, one of the cool things that happened was, uh, I, I think it was this show where he intros Dr. Love and he says, Ace, place the call. <laughs> and, wow. and points to Ace and Ace does the guitar riff. And, you know, cheesy as that is, I like any time when Paul acknowledges the other people on stage. Now, if we're going to take some pot shots here, can somebody answer me this? At what point did, did uh, they get so lazy that when they do this song live from, from 1979 on, they can't even say the word calling in the fucking chorus? <laughs> they just get rid of it altogether. It's all, you know, Dr. Love, Dr. Love, Dr. Love. <laughs> that, those, that is not the lyrics, goddammit. It's not even the title of the song. You're if you right, want to talk about right. if you want to talk about lazy, the laziest thing is that Gene reverted to pronouncing "do" as a one-syllable word. You know, in the in the studio version, he he makes it he manages to make it a a, a three-syllable word. You know what I'm talking about? No, please please tell us. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, you let me through. There's nothing you can do. You know, I mean, it's a you know, it's. It, it almost sounds like a boing. Yeah, a ball yeah. bouncing. You can right. do. Yeah, good song. <laughs> wow. Okay, our next track is "Ladies Room," Mr. Joe Casey. Uh, probably um, a great song, but uh, but again, to me, a, a really weak version when you compare it to the version that's the live version on a live two. It's got so much more energy, and the, the way he phrases the lyrics uh, is, he just learned how to sing it as they were playing it on tour, I think, and learned the um, where the phrases should go and everything. You know, he just he got better at it. Um, this is like, it's a it's like a demo version of a great song, but it's just on this studio version. It's just to me, it's it's just not there yet. You know, and it's even. It's even got a fairly, probably got the weakest guitar solo on the whole album. You know, there's just not, it's not horribly imaginative. It's kind of a riff solo that just, it just kind of does it, you know, does its thing and it's gone. But it, you know, a song absolutely redeemed by its inclusion on Alive 2. Brian Schaller. I love how that solo sounds on Alive 2. Um, listening to it 
through headphones is a lot of fun. I, I, I think that's a great version of it. Um, it's 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 just a fun song. It's a silly song. Um, I, I I I do prefer it on a live too, to be honest. Matt. Well, simply put, this is my favorite Gene Simmons song. Uh, really? Yeah, I I love this song, and I actually like this version better than the live version. Um, I don't really know what it is about the way that it's delivered or the riff. I, I, again, I like the way Gene's vocals are on this version. I think they, the, the problem I have with the live two versions of the songs is they speed them they speed them up quite a bit. And I really kind of like the tempo of this version of this song. And actually, I think that uh, the song "Yes, I Know" from Sonic Boom sort of turns yeah. the song. It's, it turns the song inside out in terms of the chord pattern. It's the same Chuck Berry chord structure, but it's it's a, it's sort of a sister song to the song. And I think both are really effective in the same way. They have that really simple approach that's just very effective and 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 really refreshing in how simple it can be and how, how great it can be in that simplicity. And so this is exactly what I'm looking for from Gene Simmons. And I, love I will it. say one thing. What's not simple about this song is the bass line. The bass lines that run through the, the verses are sort of Gene at his most sort of Paul McCartney-esque. You know, I mean, people, you know, when he, in the 80s, when he just was the king of the riding the eighth note, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, you just would remember songs like this that he was singing and playing at the same time. Yeah, that's a great and, point. And, you know, it, he's really, you know, I, boy, he'd love to hear us talking like this, but he really is an underrated musician in terms of performing, you know, I, let's not call him complex, but he really did bring sort of his Beatle influence to bear within these rock songs, you know, and it, it's something people forget. And I think, you know, all the all the talk about Sonic Boom trying to bring back certain things about the band in their music and I remember Paul gave an interview where he he mentioned Gene's bass playing specifically, the way he would have uh, walking bass lines you know, through his own songs it's pretty important uh, Roland? Yeah, and I think it almost shows that Gene might have wrote this one on the bass as opposed to an acoustic guitar in this one uh, I'm with most everybody, I think it's an Alive 2 song, better than a rock and roll over song, uh using the crowd interaction on the Alive 2 version. And I love uh, watching it live. The first time I saw the song live was on uh, Exposed. And uh, that's one of my favorite live clips from Exposed by far. Gary Schaller. I, I prefer the studio version. Actually, with Alive 2, I, I prefer the all of the studio versions, ex- with the exception of um, Making Love. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I, I think this song is flawless it's it is like uh i think matt said you know what i'm looking for in a gene song it this song is the sequel to let me know and yes i know is the sequel to to ladies room and in fact the the guitar solo it reminds me of the let me know solo uh and um it, it's played it's fingered similarly on the on the neck uh great song super fun Wish they would play it, and the and the vocal harmonies, those thirds, I think it is, uh, fantastic. Very very cool song. Uh, I once heard an excellent cover version of this song uh, featuring some of the podcast staff, but that's all I'll say. Um, ah, right. Can't be too soon. 
Up next is uh, our second co-write of the CD. This this uh, next song is written by Peter Chris and Mr. Stan Penridge, and it is called Baby Driver. Here's a little bit of info about it from KissFact. Peter's contribution to the album was a reworking of an old lip song, Baby Driver, which had been demoed by that band in February of 72. Uh, apparently the song was about uh, another guy in the band, and uh, he kind of had a grudge against uh, Pete and Stan, and uh, the guy had a car, and Pete and Stan were stuck taking public transportation. So that's kind of what Baby Driver is about, was that guy's attitude. So him being pissed at Pete and Stan, and Stan and Pete had to, to ride the bus or the subway. So how you know, it's interesting. A, what's interesting is a live version of it, um, Peter doing it with, I guess, like 95 or thereabouts with his own solo band. And um, we'll play it here. I do have a version of him playing Baby Driver in 95. I think he, I think he used that woodblock. Baby Driver is on here.
Matt this time? Uh, Baby Driver is a song that I feel I never really connected that much to, uh, but I, I will say this, that, that, that it's a really simple song in the way that the riff is delivered and the way the band is sort of performing it doesn't have a lot of dynamic feel to it. But Peter Chris's voice and the fact that the band is so on fire in general sort of overcomes the fact that I think this track is a throwaway. I mean, Peter Chris is just pouring his heart out with that vocal, and it's one of his best vocals in the band. Mr. Casey? When I was a kid, I, I didn't, I just didn't grok to this song at all, for whatever reason. Me neither. And I, I think that had a lot to do, oddly enough, you know, when you had the vinyl version, the last song on a side, it was, it was, I don't know, I, for some, I always mentally kind of blocked those songs out, for whatever reason. Um, but, as I got older, uh, I really grew to appreciate how great this song is. The performance is fantastic, and not just Peter's vocal, but his drum fills in this thing are so right on. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's just a great, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, well, it's a great song. I don't know if it's a great Kiss song, but it's a great rock and roll song. Uh, and, and I mean, clearly, it from the description of its origins, which is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard, um, it's it it has nothing to do with the band necessarily. I mean, it was the one thing that uh, Peter was the one holdout, I think, out of the four in terms of, except for maybe Hooligan, writing songs that played into his persona at, at, at all. And this certainly is not a song that did not have anything to do with, you know, who Peter Chris was or what he represented in the band. It's just a good drive-in rock song. So not to yeah. be dismissed, because it's, you know, the performance is stellar from top to bottom, but sort of like in the oeuvre of Kiss material, it, I, I still look at it as something that is not essential. You know what I mean? Well, don't you think that Pete has a unique gift, or especially during the 70s, where it didn't matter who wrote the song, he could kind of make it his own. And, and not yes. in a way like where he's like, I'm going to push my thing. He would just find his niche in the song and just make it happen. Oh, without without question. I mean, you know, look at look at what happens on side two of this record. I mean, look at look at Black Diamond. Yeah, that that wasn't written for Pete to sing. I don't believe. I nothing I, to lose. You know. Yeah, and and he really is that great rock and roll voice with Ink Kiss. Yeah, definitely. And when I say rock and roll, I don't mean heavy metal. I don't mean hard rock. I mean rock and roll. No, he's got that whiskey gravelly voice that was such a, it's such a, it was such an important component that I think more than anything, when they had to replace Peter, I think the fact that Eric Carr vocally sounded, he was still in that sort of kind of, he had that same kind of voice. I think that's probably what got him the gig more than anything else, was that he sang in that same sort of whiskey gravelly thing that Peter did so well. It definitely had to be a big factor. Yeah, I think Peter did it better, but, you know, that, that was Eric's style, too. But then again, if you listen to uh, Eric's, like, solo album, if you will, the the album that they put out, uh, he, he normally doesn't really sound like that. He, he's got his own thing. So he was able to sound like that gravel voice when they needed him to. But but on the same time, Peter was also able to kind of croon a little bit. So he just right. th- those, both of them, I think, just had range. You know. Okay, Brian. 
I, I love I love uh, Pete's vocals on the song. I love the uh, you get a few of those great uh, sort of peep shrieks, like uh, for want of a better way to describe it, sort of like uh, at the end of uh, Getaway. I love it. I love I love his the style of singing. I love what he brings to it. It's where you hear what it means to, to be a cat man, you know, because he goes, wow, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a jungle cat. Can, can anyone uh, tell me exactly what he says through the whole song? Oh, yeah. We, oh, oh, you mean in terms of... Uh, There's some stuff that he sings that, to this day, I, I'm not sure what he says. Oh, yeah, although, like, you're talking about, like... Uh, I'm going to get you power or something. You know, I don't even know what the hell that is. Right. <laughs> Too much, too much of nothing, nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there's someone said something that, on a message board. They thought he was singing about roast beef at one point. I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sure that. I'm sure that. Yeah, that's that's hooligan. Right. The yeah, hooligan. Sal- yeah, chicken, chicken salad on hooligan. Yeah. So you know, he and, and it was very cool. These these outro vocals, if you will, but sometimes you didn't know what the hell was being said. <laughs> I don't think Pete necessarily knew what the hell was being said all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they, they could have just been scratch tracks and just left on there. They sounded good. You know, the passion was there. Roland, what do you think about Baby Driver? Yeah, great singing. I think it uh, brings out a lot of where his influences came from, which I think a lot of us found out later down the road coming from the swing and even a lot of the big band stuff you can hear. A lot of those influences, not only in his performance, but in his vocals. Uh, but it's also a great song to listen to in the car, and I think this whole album is. This is one of the best driving albums I think Kiss ever did. If you got a long road trip, this is a great album to put on, and Baby Driver is one of those perfect songs that'll just get you farther down the road. You know, that's interesting what you just said about the big band influence that Peter had. Those yeah. uh, guitar slurs in the chorus are almost like horn parts in a big band song. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. You feel that in a lot of his uh, early stuff. I think all the way up through Love Gun, at least. Mm. You really hear a lot of that big band influence from him. I think it's it's a great song. I mean, it's one of the best things on the record. I love those those guitar bends. Uh, Whack, 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 whack. Yeah, and and I think Ezrin at, at some point commented that Kiss arranged their guitar parts like horn parts. Which is really very true. Baby Driver is terrific. I, it's probably the most interesting, rhythmically, the most interesting thing that happens at the beginning of any Kiss song. The fact that it starts on the on the and, you know, one and two and three and four and. I'm sure we've all had that experience of listening to that song, you know, come on the record player and, and going like, whoa. <laughs> When the vocals start, it just starts in an odd place. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, it's mm-hmm. like, take me, it, it starts with the bass and guitar, you know, together, which is, again, it's just, it's not, it's just not a very common way to start a song. Criminal did shame it, that they didn't play it live, too. Did Ezra say that, Gary, that the, the, the guitars were arranged a lot like horns? It's very interesting. But if you think about it, it's true, because a lot of other rock bands, either the, you know, the lead guitarist would just solo through the whole song, or there would be a lot of strumming going on. But with uh-huh. Kiss, everything, even like the early, you know, from day one, everything was so tight and panned hard left, hard right in the, in the stereo channels to where it, things happen in blasts, like horns. And, and having that rhythmic quality to them, too. Exactly. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's talk, uh, since we're discussing Peter Chris, let's talk about the recording of the drums. Anybody ever read anything about that? I don't know why people bathroom, make such a, right? yeah, why do people make such a big deal about the fact that they did his drums in the bathroom? I, I still don't understand. Well, I think that's one of the reasons that they got such a great sound from it. I, it it's, it was just amazing. Plus they, they recorded in that theater and they did things to make that echo sound work for them. Is is very cool. And if the mics were close to the drums or far away from the drums to get more of the echo, it would be interesting to just hear where the mic placement was. Very close, I think, because you can hear the you can hear the uh, kick drum pedal actually squeaking in some of it. Mm-hmm. Which is cool. Yeah, I think, I yeah, think it was that, close mic. Yeah, never because which to me defeats the purpose of of you know setting up drums in a bathroom, which I assume is a, a tiled bathroom because they think it's going to have a lot of bounce and a lot of uh, sort of natural slap and. It's the drums are very. It's a very. It's the drums are very dry. It's a very dry record, which which makes the whole. I mean, I think that you know, whenever bands do a new record, they always have to have some uh, marketing, you know, sort of like anecdotal things to to go along with the record. And I think for this one, it was the stylistic return to the first three albums, the fact that Eddie Kramer was producing, and the fact that they recorded in this in the Star Theater, which I'm convinced. I I think they they probably recorded this album in the Star Theater as much as Alive 2 was recorded at the LA Forum, okay? That is my personal <laughs> opinion. I think they did you basics. Think so? I think they did basics at this place and then went to a studio and 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 did the rest of it. I just might, you know, I just have that feeling about it. it. You know, the, the interesting thing about you say that that the, the reverb, it, it, you know, you really can't, it sounds like a dry record, and I sort of agree with that, but the most effective use of reverb is when you can feel it and not hear it. And I think exactly. You can, you can exactly. feel the reverb on this record. I mean, the, the, the you can sort of, if you really listen to it, you can sort of hear the echo in the drums, and you can sort of hear the echo on some of the instruments, but it's natural, and that's the thing that they've gotten away from with more recent recordings in general, and that's what they have to sort of get back to if they want to make records now sound like they're coming from the 70s. Is sort of a natural reverb. Whether or not it's mites close or far away, you're going to be able to feel sort of the room in general. And I think you feel the room in this record. Great point, great point. We hope you enjoyed side one of podcast number 49, celebrating 35 years of rock and roll over. Now, don't forget to join us for side two, as the rock and roll over celebration continues. Thanks for listening. See you there. And that's our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podkiss.com. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podkiss at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at Kiss FAQ. That's a website that has tons of information about Kiss and a great message board. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And of course... Big thanks always to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are KISS. And we are your army. See you soon. PodKISS is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. PodKISS is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members, past or present. Thank you for listening to PodKISS, the KISS fanzine for your ears. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. Take take seventy three. See, I told you if I get Joe laughing, it's okay. What is oh, going on here?